Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Get a creamy Oreo frappe or McCafe smoothie for less with 20% off any purchase of $10 or more. Only on the app. Limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. Visit McDonald's app for details. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, wait. Let's start. Okay. We can do, like, I, I, I'll, I'll say you look amazing. What's going on? Thank you. Okay, you ready? Rolling. Okay. <laughs> okay. Rolling. I, I am trying so hard to be the person that is running this interview, but with Katie Kirk, I have a strong feeling that you are going to take over. Well, no, I'm not going to take over, Please but do. I am going to ask you a lot of questions because I, I haven't talked to you in a long time. I'm such a fan of Whitney's everyone. I love, I love her. I think she's amazing. And so I am going to ask you a little bit about your life, but it, this is your podcast, honey. So you take They're over. They're so sick. <laughs> of me at this point <laughs> no, but I do think there is LA New York I feel like there's you know look I have more criticisms about LA culture than anyone but I do think that the wellness you know bullshit stereotype still there but also there's a lot of new um, developments in the anti-aging space that are super legit yeah I, just because I'm from LA please don't think that this is bullshit um, uh, besides uh, eating babies or whatever people think we're doing in LA a placenta <laughs> well there's that but there's like the what conspiracy theory that what? we that Hollywood people uh, eat adrenochrome which is one of you, you haven't even heard, this hasn't even got to you Okay, we Wait, get it. Okay, it? she doesn't what listen to Joe Rogan. Tell me, what is it? It's no. There was a conspiracy theory that uh, that Hollywood people, when babies are scared, they produce a chemical called adrenochrome, and you take their stem cells, and it makes you younger. How do you get the stem cells from the babies? You have to put them in a smoothie. I mean, it's it's not true. <laughs> I swear to God. Come on. I, people, it's what? like in the same conspiracy. Are these the same people with like the Jewish lasers? Yes. It's uh, uh, the Jews control the weather. Um, and uh, what's the other? Oh, like Hillary Clinton. There was a pizza Oh, yes, restaurant. that's Pizzagate. That's in DuPont Circle in Washington. Yeah, they did a whole doc about that. Yeah, that's yeah. sort of MK Conspiracy Ultra. theories are so fascinating. Like, what is it about conspiracy theories that make people believe them. And I have this theory mm -hmm. about conspiracy theories is that people with the sort of fragmentation of society, with the fact that a lot of our institutions were, that were formally gathering places like churches and synagogues and community centers, and, and that was exacerbated during COVID, I think people are lonely and have this desire for the sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. So they join whatever crazy club that they're influenced by and they start, they, they, there's a certain community in people who believe in conspiracy theories or people who are mm -hmm. super right-wing zealots or, it's gossip, you know, really, and, yeah. and, and, and it, it has this ability to make to to make people more cohesive or something but it is so weird isn't it it is i don't get it it's also just ignorance and i i 
I mean, is it fair to say it's a lack of education? I don't know. Or being able to be a critical thinker or being a follower? I don't know what it is. I also think there are, and this is not me defending most of the conspiracy theories out there, but when it comes to someone like Alex Jones, you know, he's basically a drug dealer. He's dealing adrenaline. And adrenaline is addictive. Right. Adrenaline turns into dopamine. So, you know, people that I feel uh, that feel like they've been subjugated and oppressed by this upper class, like to them, I think it's like might as well be true in a I, way. Yeah, I guess on the other hand, you know, that to me was the most heinous kind of conspiracy theory that these suffering families, many of whom I know yeah. from from Newtown, Connecticut, from Sandy, Sandy Hook, that somehow this didn't happen. I mean, it is such... It is so grotesque. But do you think on some way, because I think that people tend to adhere to a theory that soothes them in some way, either malign the enemy with their rapists, their this, they eat babies, it makes me feel better about my choices. But do you think on any level, you know, I think I have a lot of denial in uh, uh, parts of my life where it involves grief, the way my dad passed away. I have a lot of denial about it. In a way, I have a conspiracy theory the opposite direction. Like I'm like, oh no, he just peacefully died in his sleep. Because what actually happened is just too um, uh, sort of intrusive and upsetting to accept. On the other level, do you think the people that have to go like, oh yeah, Newtown must have been fake or whatever, do you think on some level that's a coping mechanism of I can't accept that these children were uh, shot? I, I just don't give them credit for having it as a coping mechanism. I think it is, you know, I mean, if it was a coping mechanism, we would need them every day, yeah. you know, yeah. for Walmart, for, you know, the, the gay club in Colorado Springs. I mean, for what happened at UVA. I mean, every day we would just have to deny the mm -hmm. truth. So I, I think there it's something worse than that. I think it's something more, more malevolent. And I think Alex Jones is Carnival Barker and the most disgusting kind of person who preys on people's gullibility mm -hmm. and um, you know just just makes money and and you see the products he hawks. Yeah. I mean, he's just disgusting, and I'm so glad they won that case. Yeah, and it's tricky because I think that you know uh, the Epstein thing. It was really wild because he he was saying you know, uh, politicians go to a pedophile island. He wasn't, yeah. and it ended up having like, by the time the Epstein thing came out, it was like, oh, see, he was right. Oh, And yeah. then it was like, well, then he must be right about more stuff. So I was, have to confess, I mean, I do not follow Alex Jones super carefully, yeah, but it's funny, you know, once in a while when there's something, when I tweet something or put something on social media, everyone's like, well, you had dinner, you know, you hung out with Jeffrey Epstein. And I'm always like, Read my book, idiot. Um, you know, I went to, because Prince Andrew and was having uh, dinner with Jeffrey Epstein. I was never told who Jeffrey Epstein was. It was just like, can you come to this biggest single family dwelling in New York City? Uh, George Stephanopoulos is going to be there. It's a dinner in honor of Prince Andrew. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, well, gosh, George is there. Maybe I should go. And the royal wedding was going to take place that spring. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want them to have a competitive advantage <laughs> at ABC. <laughs> yeah. So I said, okay, I'll go. And Chelsea Handler and I were supposed to have dinner that night. Mm -hmm. So I said, do you want to go to this dinner? I don't really know what it's going to be like, but it should be interesting. The house is interesting. I think I Googled Jeffrey Epstein. And of course, the thing before I got there, the thing came, that what came out is that he, 
had gotten off that remember that yeah. thing in Florida and that lawyer and so I thought well that's kind of sketchy but it wasn't the full story of what Jeffrey Epstein had actually done but anyway it's just so funny because that has gotten spun into this whole big thing that you know basically I was procuring young girls for Jeffrey Epstein. But that's disgusting <laughs> because I, and you know, I, I'm not going to ask you about Matt Lauer because... No, you can. Because, I'm happy to talk about because that. Because it really bothers me when women, who we already tend to have to work twice as hard to get half as far, also have to be held accountable and speak for the bad behavior no, of that's, men in our field. No, that's a great point, Whitney. I think a lot of people, you know, I always want to say I am not, I was not Matt's babysitter. You know, and it is very interesting how quickly it turns from whatever, you know, his behavior was to what did people know and why wasn't he stopped? And, and listen, I think that's a legitimate question when it comes to his superiors, his bosses, but his coworkers, I think the onus should not be on us unless someone comes to us, obviously, and, and complains exactly, unless and you says, have information. I have a real problem or you know something that's going on. People's bad behavior, they keep it a great secret, you know? Well, he was extremely discreet, I have to say, and, um, you know, and, and seemingly compartmentalized his behavior. And, uh, you know, it, it just... It's just strange for people to say about even Savannah or Hoder, people who were with him more recently, what did you know and when did you know it? And, you know, Matt was doing things very surreptitiously and, um, and, and certainly wasn't something that I was aware of. And what I will say when, you know, people come to me as soon as uh, a male comedian, right. you know, is found out for some kind of, you know, nefarious behavior, um, it's always, well, what did you know? And why didn't you do anything? You must have known. I'm like, okay, first of all, I'm already having to work twice as hard to get half as far. Second of all, I don't go out of my way to go through the cell phone photos of my male comedian friends. I'm not here to, I'm not checking IDs at the door. That's someone else's job, you know? And, you know. Well, it's almost like, you know, all comedians, and, and, and I think they, this was portrayed for the Today Show as well. Like, we all got on a bus after the show and went on a picnic and we mm -mm. spent all our downtime mm -mm. together. And it's almost like there's this club of comedians and that you all, you know, live in a trailer somewhere or live in a, yeah. you know, house yeah, somewhere yeah, and you go from gig to gig. Yeah. And it's like, what? Yeah. It's and really we weird. And yeah, totally. And, you know, I go so far, so, so far as to say if I see male comedians cheating on and they're married i'm still not going to get involved that's none of my business number one it's not illegal this is between you and i don't know what your arrangement is with your wife or your family and it's you know i don't want to set the example that hey if you're going to be a woman in a male-dominated field not only do you have to work twice as hard to get half as far and as a comedian you know female comics were the most hated species on the planet <laughs> we'll already you know basically within five minutes of getting on stage where the woman that you know uh, uh took half of your money in the divorce where your mom that didn't breast feed you or the girl that didn't screw you in high school, you know, and we're basically women that are give, complaining and giving our opinions. And the, the whole arrangement is you do not get to have sex with us at the end. This isn't a date where if you listen to my stories, you might, you know, be able to hook up with me later. The arrangement is you pay me for my opinion. So it's already, you know, uh, a job that's, you know, uh, pushing it. But in don't a lot you of ways. think, I mean, but before we talk about that, I just wanted to mention one thing. Like, I thought it was so weird when, because Meryl Streep 
had been in movies, Miramax movies, Mm -hmm. somehow she was being held accountable for Harvey Weinstein's behavior. I mean, I think that's just another example of, of women being blamed for men behaving badly. But when it comes to comedians, don't you think that's changed some? Do you think women comedians are more accepted? Because I remember, like, there have been so many articles about this, Whitney, like, over the years. And I don't know. I, I just wonder, has it changed or not? I think so. You know, I think that female, I think comedians in general are always going to be an acquired taste, you know, not only because comedy is incredibly subjective, it's super emotional. We're holding up the mirror to everyone's insecurities, you know, political leanings. Sometimes we say things that are incendiary on purpose. And a lot of what we do is we're going to say the craziest thing, maybe the meanest thing. And in the past 10, 15 years, that's not necessarily uh, a super hard thing to find. With Twitter, with our former president, you can find mean, nasty insults and hot takes and ridiculous opinions anytime you want. You know, you can go to the comment section of any YouTube and you'll see just the most brutal, horrible words being said, crazy, right. you know, outlandish things. You can go to Alex Jones, you know, to hear ridiculous, you know, uh, takes and, you know, paranoia. And um, so it used to kind of be that we were the one-stop shop for sort of hideous thoughts, uh, saying all the things you can't say anywhere else, um, you know, testing the uh, boundaries of the First Amendment. So I think that the job of a comedian is really changing right now. It's very interesting. And we were talking briefly before the camera started rolling about, um, you know, comedians getting canceled and sort of changing. And I've been fascinated to see how sometimes like Sarah Silverman Mm -hmm. has said in the past, she has been insensitive or she regrets some of her comedy. And I'm curious how you feel about that. And, 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 and additionally, there was something so interesting. I think John's brother sent him a video of Norm McDonald. Mm. I don't know if you've seen this. I don't know if there's a, at the Emmys or what some award ceremony brought out a native American in full native American garb and started riffing and mocking Marlon Brando, I guess. Um, And this was, I don't, it'd be interesting to find the date. Jon Stewart was shot in the audience laughing hysterically. There were a lot of people and it just did not age well. I have to be honest, it didn't age well. And my husband and I watched it and we were like, wow, Mm -hmm. you you could not do that today. And it did seem distasteful, I have to be honest, you know, and, I'm just curious. I know this is your. It's just, no, I'm just saying. No, you're making these incredible points, and I just I didn't know if talking about comedy would even be interesting to you. Because oh I think yeah, that, it's super. I mean, you're super interesting to me. I think this is the perfect com- time to talk about it because so much of what I think you know comedians the impossibly high standards we're being held to is a lot because um, you know you've always known this. We've always kind of known this on some level. I'm from D.C. That this in the last ten years in the zeitgeist the pulling the curtain behind of a lot of our authority figures being so corrupt and be and there's so much uh, corruption within um, politics now that it was always probably there and maybe worse before, but now we just have a, you know. I, mean, I don't know if it was ever worse. I mean, I, I think 
Donald yeah. Trump has brought it to a whole new level. Sure. And sure. I never know with stuff like when people say cancer is at an all time high, you're like, is it an all time high or is it just easier to diagnose? Was mm -hmm. it, you know, when people yeah. say, why are there all these trans people all of a sudden? You go, wait a second. Are there more trans people now than ever? Or, or are they all just more comfortable being trans? Exactly. Yeah. And we're able to see their Instagram posts and they're able right. to make themselves visible. So I kind of never really know exactly. Right. And that's not something that's, I, that's actually a good point. And I agree. I sometimes wonder that myself. Yeah. I don't know because if you're a politician a hundred years ago, you could probably get away with way more than you can now because there were no camera phones and there was no way to yeah, well, secretly certainly extramarital affairs for sure for sure you know but um you know and also with this you know in the last 10 years which i think is you're uh, uniquely qualified to weigh in on this with the most authority of the um, sort of distrust, all-time high distrusted meet in uh, journalism and in the news. People are now going to comedians, to, you know, post John right. Stewart going, well, you're fake news. Uh, a lot of kids know. are getting their news from TikTok. A lot of people are getting their news from late night. Well, they want comedians all of a sudden to be moral authority figures because you guys are the ones that speak truth to authority and you tell the truth. And John Stewart became sort of who everyone started trusting right. as a journalist, even though he was a comedian. So people are now putting these impossibly high moral standards on us when we're like, wait, we're the scumbags. I mean, I don't even know if I'd call John Stewart. I would call him a social commentator. You know, one hundred percent. I mean, not a journalist. So I think, but 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 I don't think I wouldn't call him a comedian either. He's this hybrid person, and I would say the same of of Stephen Colbert, probably, mm -hmm. probably a little less of Jimmy Fallon because I think he stays away yep. from the political stuff because he got so much trouble when he tousled. Donald Trump's hair mm -hmm. when he he was on his show. I got a lot of um, flack because I did the Donald Trump roast 13 years ago, and this was before anyone you know had any idea who was really running for office. Right. You know, we heard we were writing jokes about it, you know, if he's running for president, and we made jokes about it being a publicity stunt. We didn't know that it was a very calculated um, move. As someone who is a he's you know a media kind of genius in a right. lot of ways, he knew that being punched, being insulted by Hollywood elites is going to make me more likable, and he knew the power of a roast and publicly allowing yourself to be made the underdog makes other people like you more. I think maybe that's giving him a little too much credit, but why do you still get criticized? I mean, I do think he's a brilliant marketer, and he's great. I mean, disgustingly great at yeah. worms like fake news and kind of mocking people and coming up with little mm -hmm. monikers for, for people, but... But so 13 years ago, you did this roast, mm -hmm. and then he runs for president, mm -hmm. and people were saying, Why were you? They're saying you nice normalized him. him. You normalized you him. You made yeah. him seem like an underdog. You know, you made him seem like a victim, and it made him likable. Like, oh, the, you know, all these bully comedians are beating up on him. Yeah. You know, and yeah. he has a sense of humor, and he took it. And so in, he went from being the bully to being bullied, and it made him sort of more likable. Yeah. I mean, after that set, you know, we were here. It was Larry King, and you know, it was in New Ham at the Hammer Ballroom. No, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was the Friars Club, right? Howard Stern yeah. was there. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And as I might have been there. I you don't even know. Might have been. Yeah, and I because was he was always on the Today Show with The Apprentice. But he was a lot more less repugnant back then than he was once he ran for office. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. We now know what a corrupt businessman he was and how he didn't pay people, but. And and also and how he you know the discrimination that we saw with the apartment buildings and all this stuff that has come to light. But back then he was sort of thought of as an affable buffoon, sort of. Yeah. And 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 maybe buffoon is even too strong a word, but just kind of a 
you know, the Donald, right? Yep. This sort of tacky Clown. businessman who was never really accepted by New York society, right? So in a weird way, he was kind of the underdog back then. I don't know. I mean, obviously, what was unleashed during the presidential run and this this kind of power he amassed in, in politics, I think, brought out the very worst in him as a malignant narcissist. But back then, it it, it, it was just different. And I think... That's one thing that's really something we we don't think about or we have this knee-jerk reaction when we see things that like the the American the Native American man yeah. who they were kind of making fun of. I think you have to also consider the times that we were living in. It doesn't right. make it any less um, sort of offensive, but it just makes it a little more understandable. Uh, 100%. And co with comedy, context is everything. And comedy is sort of meant to work uh, in an ephemeral sort of way. It's like fashion. You know, we don't look back, you know, of what someone was wearing 30 years ago and go, oh, she has terrible taste. But you're like, no, at the time, that's was right. in I know. style. I know. And sometimes I see old pictures of me and I was like, I actually left my house thinking I look good. <laughs> But, and, and I you always did say, at the no, time. Uh, I don't know about that, but it's just funny. <laughs> yeah, and you look back and you're like, I was doing the best I could at the time with the tools I had. And, you know, I think that it's the kind of, you know, again, as a comedian, I tend to just sort of like often take devil's advocate or add context to things. That's what we do, uh, often at great cost, you know. Who do we get mad at uh, when Norm brings out a Native American and it looks bad? Do we laugh at the? Do we get angry at the person that did it or the people who laughed? Same with Donald Trump. Do we get mad at Donald Trump or do we get mad at all the people that voted for him? Well, how about both? All I don't know the answer. Yeah. Yes, but I don't even know if it's mad. It's just like wow, you know. It's just it's just interesting to observe how things change and you know what is acceptable. Mm -hmm what was acceptable then versus what is acceptable now. And you were talking about political correctness and comedy and that it's everyone has gotten a little too sensitive in your view. And here's what I'll say. I, I actually don't find that uh, as a bad thing. I think that, you know, people getting sensitive or not wanting comedians to make jokes about fat chicks or make racist jokes about black people. I think I think that's a good thing. I think it, you know, challenges us and forces us to level up and play to the top of and our not intelligence. punch down. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a good thing. You know, I'm always looking for you know more and more boundaries. It forces us to be more clever. And ultimately, it's not my decision what people think is funny. I work for the audience. If you guys don't want to hear that kind of stuff anymore. I'm going to evolve and change. I, you know, to me, I think that being a comedian often means staying quite immature. And I like it when people force me to be more mature. Uh -huh. Another thing I'll say is that I don't complain about all the eggshells on the ground and cancel culture, etc. Because, you know, I think it's going to not only make comedy better, but it's going to make the art and, you know, performance of comedy way more interesting for everyone because four years ago, everyone was so desensitized, nothing, you couldn't build any tension. There was, in the news, there was uh, conversations about a P, the president's P tape. Stormy Daniels was the front page of everything. There was no way to shock anyone. Mm -hmm. You know, as a comedian, you go on stage, you, you couldn't say anything to shock people. Now, there's tension again. There's eggshells on the ground again and comedy feels dangerous. So for me, it makes comedy way more fun. And do you think that people's sensitivities have gone overboard that, you know, that there that there's so much material that is simply off limits or when you're talking about mm -hmm. any group that may be disenfranchised or marginalized mm -hmm. or whatever, 
you know, that that you can't go there or you have to really think about how you approach that like anything, specific you just, kind of humor. It's always been the case. You just have to be smart about it. You uh, have to uh, be, you know, careful in the way that you craft your set. Context is everything. I'll say two things. Number one, I think comedians are making a huge mistake right now in uh, basically giving out their comedy for free online, on Twitter, etc., where they have no idea when it's going to be read, by who, uh, what the context is going to be in. So say you have a great abortion joke that when you're you know, in the basement of a comedy club at 9 p.m., when it's dark, people have signed up to come see comedy. They're already primed for this. And don't you think they want to be made to... Don't you think they want to be made to feel uncomfortable? I think absolutely. I think I people mean, are signing up. It's like going to a haunted house. You're signing mm -hmm. up to be scared. You're going to a horror movie. You're signing up to watch people get murdered. If you're just walking down the street, you don't want to see that when you haven't paid money and emotionally prepared for it. But what comedians are doing is right now, you're putting your uh, abortion joke on Twitter at two in the afternoon on a Tuesday. That's not when comedy is supposed to be given to people. You don't know where your joke is going to land. Why are they doing that? You know, I think that comedians are looking for, you know, new ask, audiences anywhere, new audiences, looking to build followings, you know, but I think comedian comedy always needs to be delivered by the comedian. Cause if I just write a joke out and give it to you, you're now trusting someone else to deliver it the way, right. you know, they're not going to do it with a wink and a smile. It's not between 20 minutes of jokes. I was going to say, it's not, where it's they out of context, as yeah, you said. you know, so, and it could be posted or retweeted to someone that doesn't follow you, that doesn't know who you are, that didn't sign up for your irreverent comedy, and it could come between two tweets about a school shooting. You know, and all of a sudden it's not as funny anymore. So I think that it's, we don't have, I always say we don't have a free speech problem. We have a speech for foodie problem. Why are you giving out your comments? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Get a creamy Oreo frappe or McCafe smoothie for less with 20% off any purchase of $10 or more. Only on the app. Limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. Visit McDonald's app for details. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba -ba. For free to a bunch of people that are going to go out of their way to intentionally misunderstand what you're doing in order to justify being offended. Yeah. You know, so I think most people don't want, you know, football. I love watching football. On Sundays with a beer and some guys, I got my computer and I don't want to just have someone force me to watch football on a Tuesday when I'm at work yeah. doing something else, you know? So I think comedians, we're sensitive by nature. We're incredibly um, histrionic. We have histrionic dramatic reactions to everything. So there's no surprise that we have histrionic dramatic reactions that now we're finding out that a couple of people don't think we're funny and we're losing our minds, Yeah, you know? So I think we're also doing comedy for people that just aren't comedy fans. So when did you decide you wanted to go into, to go into comedy? Cause we should tell the story mm -hmm. about how our paths crossed. I don't know if we were there at the same time or not, but we both worked at WRC, uh, the NBC ONO. Mm-hmm. TV station in Washington, D.C. Where Willard Scott would give the local uh, yeah. weather report. And yeah, and he was Ronald McDonald back in the day. And, and he was he also would, a joy boy of radio, which you have to be really ancient to remember and that. And he would do the Smucker, brought to you by oh, Smucker's yeah, 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 happy birthday to the oldest people. Yeah, and you were an intern, right? You I worked was, with Barbara Harrison, who's still a good friend of mine. I was an intern for Barbara Harrison in Washington, D.C. Uh, my mom worked at the Bloomingdale's, Tyson's Corner, White Flint, 
you know, Barbara came in all the time to get the, her Christmas gifts and stuff. And, and Barbara I, was a local anchor, everyone, and really, really wonderful person. And I became close to her because her husband died of colon cancer, I think before my husband died of colon cancer it was very strange but anyway so you're 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 helping barbara at I'm, wrc i got to go into the newsroom as they were you know choosing the local news stories and stuff and um and i was i i went to annenberg school of communications at penn i wanted to be a journalist but i really struggled with being objective so i <laughs> remember one day they let me read the teleprompter and like read the local news uh so that i had like a reel oh that's was, so cute you yeah. know, and I had, I went to uh, a Buffalo Exchange, which is a, a secondhand store, and I found a Thomas Pink shirt. Oh, that's a good find. I know, it was yeah. really did not fit me at all. <laughs> Looks was sweating. I had giant pit stains. <laughs> And, you know, local news in D.C. is always going to be pretty wild. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it was something about a child that had gotten kidnapped. Oh, and gosh, yeah. I, since I was very young, always used humor to cut tension and to cope with grief. So I make inappropriate jokes when I feel uncomfortable. You know, when things get too serious, I grew up in an alcoholic home where things were always very tense. And if you could just, you know, I was, that's why I loved watching Roseanne growing up. It was all just, um, you know, a family using jokes and humor to cope with an impossible situation. So that was sort of, you know, a muscle I knew I had. Um, and especially very dark things, I always felt the need to laugh. You know, I'd laugh at funerals and then be miserable at parties. I was like, something's off. I must be a comedian. And uh, so the prompter came up and I started reading it. It was about a boy that had gotten kidnapped and they couldn't find him. And the kid you know, there was a photo that came up of him and he was a, a corpulent little boy. And I remember going, well, very we, good word. I, I mean, I'm trying, we don't say fat anymore. He's fat kid. Um, and, uh, he came up this little, uh, you know, butterball of a kid. And I just was like, well, the kidnapper is obviously very strong. If they were able to carry him off, you know, I just started making jokes, you know, I was just like, <laughs> and what was everyone around saying? It, like, eh, eh, it eh, was, eh. It, they, it wasn't airing anywhere. No, they, I know. They were just doing Okay, yeah, but people started laughing, and then I was like, I, I know that I didn't get the job. No one's gonna <laughs> hire me, but I just learned in that moment. I can't. was that when you decided, oh, I'm gonna go into comedy. In that moment, I pivoted a little bit, and I was wow. like, I think that there's something broken about my brain where I can't seriously talk about something tragic without trying cracking a joke. Really? To and make do you it think more. that's because of your childhood and your dad and yes. what exactly happened to your dad? You know, my I don't know this story. I'm sorry to say. It's yeah, it's um he had a stroke. Uh both my parents had strokes uh the same year about uh 10 years ago and he was basically paralyzed from the neck down and um you know, had a trach in his, you know, had to talk, could hardly, you know, speak for years, um, you know, really awful. And ultimately, you know, and I don't know enough about this subject to even adequately criticize the nursing home healthcare situation in America. I mean, healthcare in America is just a disaster nightmare regardless, but he was in a nursing home in the South that was a, you know, critical care, you know, f um, uh, skilled nursing facility, mm -hmm. but in the South, uh, if you have a child who is mentally ill, schizophrenic, um, you know, severely autistic and can't take care of themselves, a lot of times they will take, you know, young kids in their teens and 20s and put them in the same facility as old people that also need right. skilled care. And there was, um, I'm going to kind of not get too detailed about it, but there was a, um, a very mentally ill schizophrenic person that basically... Um, uh, put him in a, uh, attacked him and he couldn't survive. Oh. Um, you know, so it was just sort of an awful 
situation. It, you know, either way, you know, by this time he was paralyzed from the neck down. It was going to be how old? Awful how old was either he? way, probably seventy-three. And, he had a stroke very young. And and. You said you grew up in an alcoholic family. You know, and I say uh, this in a couple ways. You know, uh, you know, as someone that I'm in recovery for um, yeah, codependence, I'm an Al-Anon, adult child of alcoholics, which mm -hmm. is sort of, you know, we're not addicted necessarily to substances or drugs, although some can be. Um, I have a lot of that addiction in my family, but you end up when you grow up in a very chaotic environment like that with mercurial parents who are overwhelmed or incapacitated, you end up being addicted to control, perfection, chaos, adrenaline, other addicts, rescuing people, fixing people. We say the three M's, mothering, micromanaging, and martyring ourselves. You know, so it's, you know, kind of a, a, a I think something that also afflicts a lot of women in many ways, uh, having an overdeveloped sense of responsibility, thinking right. you have to solve everyone else's problems, and you take care of everyone but yourself type thing. Yeah. Um, at the expense of everyone. Nobody wins, though. It's, you right. know, and we learn being nice is not nice. And in codependence, we think we have to solve everyone's problems for them, when in reality, we're just infantilizing them and not giving them them the dignity of their own experience and um, you know so I'm in recovery for that but you know something that has really helped me is to learn that in order for alcoholism to be present alcohol doesn't have to be present so you know a lot of people think oh I didn't grow up in an alcoholic home I didn't see someone drinking whiskey out of a paper bag right but you might see you know unrecovered Al-Anonism you might be seeing you know uh, uh, you know I think a lot of what happened with Trump if I'm to be honest is that he created uh, the sort of access to the internal medicine cabinet of adrenaline, causing people this just constant adrenaline. You know, I see people that are just addicted to reading about him, addicted to thinking about him, you know, because he creates adrenaline and adrenaline turns into dopamine. So having, you know, chaos in the home, uh, sex addiction, love addiction, um, addictions to like cooking, cleaning, perfection, stuff like that. Um, workaholism. I also think I had a lot of workaholism in my, my family. I had a mom that worked full time and she was a full time mom and she was a full time entertainer. And, you know, I don't think that it was always a choice in terms of how hard she worked, you know, at the time as a woman, I'm sure, you know, she had to work, you know, her tush off, but you know, there was a lot of addiction that wasn't necessarily just someone drinking alcohol. Um, sounds like you've had a lot of, um, I mean, obviously you know a lot about it and you've had a lot of therapy to kind of help you sort this out, but do you think most comedians have this sort of you know, this is the old trope, this dark, mm -hmm. complicated background and the tears of a clown and all that jazz. Do you think that is is true or is that a cliche? I'll say two things about that. Number one, because I, I, I do want to point out the cognitive dissonance that most people right now are engaging in with that trope and that stereotype of all comedians are traumatized. They must have had horrible things happen in their right. life. But also the new thing is comedians are bullies and they're hurting people, you know? And I just invite people to sort of think about what is your take exactly on that, you know? Because, you know, comedians are punching down, they're causing violence with their jokes. I'm like, okay, I don't, uh, if you have data on that, I would love to see it. But what the data we do have is we just saw Chris Rocket punched in the face and no one even stood up. No one, no one stood up what had happened. No one cared. You know, we just, uh, we have videos. That was the weirdest thing. I have many thoughts. We saw John Caparulo um, at the Hermosa Comedy Magic Club. A glass was thrown at him. Jim Jeffries was punched in the face on stage in um, Australia. We just saw a girl, um, the, this comedian Ariel had a beer can thrown at her head. You know, so comedians are uh, under attack at the moment, actually physically. I think just, but, but part of it, don't you think, I feel like the world 
just feels like it's unraveling. Feral. You know, you People look at these. Yeah, it's 100%. true. You look at these shootings and you just think there is, I, I mean, every, it's just feels like people don't have an escape valve or mm -hmm. they're so screwed up That's or right. they're so full of anxiety and depression and anger and resentment that it just feels like society is is sick right now. I will say in I right after the pandemic, you know, all my all the tours got canceled. I did 70 cities after that in theaters. I would say 60% of the shows there were physical fights that broke out. Um, I think that people went from, you know, post 9/11 we're all in this together to the pandemic of if your mask is on wrong, you're trying to kill my dad. Yeah. You know, I think and everyone just became your enemy. You don't know who's sick, who's not. We're moving through the world with you could be sick and have no symptoms. You're not wearing your mask, right? You could have COVID. If you get close to me, you're trying to kill my children. And I think it became this feral, everyone for their own. I don't know who's vaxxed. I don't know who has COVID. Right. Everyone's just your enemy by default. And proximity all of a sudden became a super dangerous thing, you know, of I'm shoulder to shoulder with someone that I don't know, especially in a comedy venue when the whole business model is you're going to be shoulder to shoulder with a stranger and exhale droplets on each other for two hours. You know, I think that everyone is in so much fear. I think mm -hmm. that, you know, media obviously is in a tricky place where they have to make money and, you know, clickbait works mm -hmm. and they capitalize on us being terrified and uh, in a constant state of fear and terrified of each other. I also think that uh, the way this country is, is built, it's like, you know, this was an experiment. You know, and I think now is where it's like, okay, the rubber really hit the road in terms of healthcare. Of like, if you're giving people, putting them in a situation where they have no hope and no, no, even a delusional hope of upward mobility, which we used to have this right. rags to riches, anyone can ascend their class. It's now, you know, I think people are like, I have nothing to live for. I, that just must make people lose their minds. It's interesting because I was uh, involved, I went to this conference called Google Zeitgeist and I did a breakfast with uh, other journalists, David Sanger from the New York Times and John Kelly who started a new publication service, I don't know what you want to call it, called Puck. And you know, they asked me what isn't getting enough attention and I said income inequality because I think it is fomenting so much anger and class resentment and hopelessness, all the things that you just described, I think that it's at the root cause of our polarization. Mm -hmm. And I feel like so many people who are not doing well, who are in the middle of the country, um, who aren't quote unquote coastal elites, and there's plenty of people on the coast who are not elites who are struggling too, but they just don't feel seen or heard. And mm -hmm. I also think it's, it's, misogynism, racism, yep. you know, all of those things. I think my father-in-law says Trump kind of pulled the lid off the sewer and everything comes came spewing out. And I think with changing demographics, when you think about the fact that by 2044, there's going to be a majority minority population, mm -hmm. white people will no longer be the majority in this country. 
that is extremely threatening to there's a, a lot of people. All the school shooters are white guys, you know, yeah. as, as you know, you know, there's been a little bit more hope with women and people of color and people that have been historically subjugated. But I think the white men who have, you know, only moved through the world with privilege, all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, I'm not, I'm getting something taken from me. But on this, at the, at the same time, I mean, are all white men privileged? No. I mean, I know that's a very controversial thing to probably say, but I thought, you know, there are a lot of people socioeconomically who may be white and, and yet because of their circumstances, yes, they walk through the world with certain privilege. Mm -hmm. I understand that and certain and, and emanating certain things that people of color don't. Mm -hmm. But, but I also think there's, there is, can sometimes be an issue with generalizing all groups of people. Agree. And, and I think we have to be careful about that. I mean, I, you know, this is sort of shaky ground coming from a white privileged woman, mm -hmm. but, but I sometimes think that, that we get, make these blanket statements mm -hmm. that aren't necessarily fair. Agree. And I think that for me, I'll just speak personally is that, you know, and I'm interested to hear this from you because we really spend a lot of time talking about how much harder it is to be a woman in a male dominated business, at least for me. But I know for it has been in a lot of ways. And I've had my ass grabbed by club owners and I've gotten paid less and this and that, you know, and I can, you know, spend all day telling all the reasons it's unfair, but that's just, it's not interesting to me. I signed up for a, you know, job that is, uh, you know, has a lot of, you know, challenges in a lot of ways. But I also argue when people say comedy is male dominated. I'm like, yeah, but it's also a traditionally very female craft to just complain for hours and hours and talk about your feelings. So it is a lot of men, but they're doing something that is traditionally very feminine in a lot of ways. But I know that in the past couple years with this sort of reckoning and with more women getting into comedy, a lot of the things that I was able to get away with before because I was a girl, I can't get away with anymore. And it's like, wait a second, I can't talk about sex anymore all the time. I can't make this joke and I can't, uh, I can't rely on the fact that I'm the only woman here and you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, I know that I got a lot of opportunities that I maybe didn't deserve very early. Did I stick the landing on them? Yes. Did I capitalize on them? Yes. But it used to be they had to put a woman on the lineup. So even though I wasn't funny yet or talented yet, I got a lot of spots that I didn't deserve. Right. Now I have to actually deserve it because there's a lot of amazing, you know, female comics out there and they're not putting me on just because they have to. So crazy, crazy what greater equality will do. It's a little bit of a bitch because <laughs> now I have to earn it. Whereas some the shit I got for free that I didn't deserve. So I'm only just speaking in terms of, you know, the, 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 let's say whatever percentage of people did, you know, get a little bit of a leg up because they were a white guy that now don't get that leg up anymore. I'm sure it does feel like something's been taken from right. them when in fact they were just giving something, given something they didn't deserve in the first place. So for me, I go, well, this has been taken from me. And I'm like, no, I just, I was given it unfairly before. But it's hard. I think it's hard for people to, to give up things, Yeah, you know, and, and yet it's important to move aside and give other people opportunities. And, um, and something yeah. I will say is, you know, just to, you know, pivot a little bit to uh, journalism and you as a, you know, American icon, uh, you know, what I will say is, you know, I can't speak for why people are, you know, I'm um, snapping now, but I'll speak for myself, which is that, you know, even pre 9-11, I woke up every morning 
and Katie was on and it was just, I know I can trust this. I started every day with someone I could trust, someone that sort of soothed my fears, someone that had a great laugh and sense of humor. I knew was going to give me the information, you know, in a fair way, in an accurate way, was going to tell me everything I needed to know in order to go through my day. We went through a national trauma with 9-11. I was at UPenn when it happened. Uh, you were on the television. I ran from my apartment in Philly to Penn, you know, um, uh, and you were on. Every class had you on, and there was someone there to sort of soothe the nightmare. If that happened today, when the pandemic happened, we didn't have a Katie Couric to put everything in context and to kind of soothe us that we could trust and look to. You don't, didn't feel like you could watch, say, Anderson Cooper or Savannah that way, and you didn't feel, did you trust what they were saying? It's not that I didn't trust them. I just didn't have an established relationship yeah. with them. You know, you uniquely, and maybe I just hadn't spent enough time with Savannah. I hadn't sort of, you know, uh, I didn't have, you know, because my parents and maybe, watched And also you. The, the muscle memory of, of kind of my persona being ingrained in your morning experience, right? And, yeah. and knowing she's gonna ask the question, no one has the audacity to ask. She's gonna put everything in context. She's gonna use a sense of humor every now and then when things get dicey. You know, I just, I had a trust and a love for you that gave me a sense of security. Well, that's interesting. So, so someone works with me, Adriana, who wrote her college thesis about me. And it was about sort of the changing roles of femininity and broadcast journalism. And she talked a lot about parasocial relationships yeah. you develop with somebody who you watch regularly or you read regularly or you see, you know, it could be on a scripted show, but but more, I think, in in journalism. And I think it's just harder to establish that relationship because of the fragmentation of media today it's you know you can get news it's become so commoditized you can get it anywhere mm -hmm. you can get it on your phone you can get it on twitter you can get it on instagram you can and and so the ability to kind of form those relationships with a trusted figure mm -hmm. and someone you don't do go to every day and that it feels almost like a communal experience because Think about it, Whitney. When I did the Today Show, I started in 1991. So there were three three news networks, really, three yeah. morning shows, and, and CBS was sort of always kind of lagging behind. I don't think Fox, maybe they'd had more local mm -hmm. morning shows. It was before Fox News and, and uh, you know, before Fox News became Fox News. I don't even know when Fox News, the cable channel, Fox right. News channel actually started. But... My point is, you had your local news wherever you lived. You had these big national newspapers like Chicago, the Washington Post, the New York Times, et cetera, the mm -hmm. LA Times. And then you had ABC, NBC, and CBS. Mm -hmm. And you had National Public Radio and maybe your local radio station where you got news from them or you know between songs you were listening to. Mm -hmm. So it was a much less... You know, it, it, there were the, there there was not this paradox of choice, and so I think I was very lucky when I did when when I was in broadcast news when I did the Today Show, and we could afford doing things that that 
I mean, we still had to think about what was going to get ratings mm-hmm. and would people turn away from certain things. But I think we had this very much this this drive and this purpose and this desire to really give people all kinds of information that they would need. I remember I did a piece on uh, Matisse in Morocco that was at the National Gallery because I love Matisse and I did a, like a long segment on that. We do things on Broadway shows, authors, yeah. you know. It was a real, I think, I was always so proud at the end of that show most days. At nine o'clock, I'd be like, wow, we really contributed to people's ability to understand the world, to be enlightened about a subject, to learn about some kind of cultural event. You yeah, know? It wasn't just clickbait, this person's dead, this and it person's wasn't, yeah. and, it, and it wasn't also just sort of warm and fuzzy, soft, like chatting. Like we limited, I think one mistake sometimes, because um, I always was very cognizant about the chat portion feeling too inside baseball because nobody wants to feel left out. Right, right. And sometimes I think there's too much, as my mom would say, uh, you know, laughing and scratching yeah. on these <laughs> on these shows. And, and and there's so much information. There's so many important things that people need to know. Mm-hmm. It's it's a bit of a waste of time. And also the you want people to be collegial, but they don't have to be, you know, mm-hmm. The whole Today Show family, we always knew, like, yeah, we're the family, the Manson family. We'd make jokes about that. Right, right, right. You know? And so I think that can be too too heavy-handed, and I, I at times today I think it is. But it just was such a different world. And iPhones didn't come about till, what, 2007, 2008. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people... People went to us. It also used to be in the, say, I'll just speak for the Washington Post, which I grew up on. Right. You got your, it, whether it was, you know, already inherently biased just by what it was covering or not, that's a different conversation, but you got your news and at the in the end, it was the op-ed. Then you right. got your opinion. Right. So it was like, it was a very clear delineation. What was fact and what was an opinion take? Maureen Dowd or, right. or right. Thomas Friedman or whoever's writing the op-ed. Yeah, and you know, that at the New York Times or like a style section piece by Sally Quinn or yes, you're right. Like in the now, it's very Post. hard to know if this is all fact or if there's an agenda behind it. Do you feel like it. that with the papers? Well, here's what I'll say. I I, I do get my new. I will um, watch Jessica Yellen, uh, uh-huh. her Instagram, yeah. and I'll. I really feel a lot of trust with Jessica. Yes. Um, I feel uh, that Crystal and Sager, uh, Breaking Points on YouTube. I will watch them, but they're both. They will sort of present the facts, and then they will present. This is my opinion on this. They'll uh-huh. sort of delineate. Right. I don't really. If I'm going to be honest like I do um, maybe Vox I'll, I'll yeah. uh, uh, read their news every now and then and then I do the AP but you I don't, don't you don't, I don't like really the read Times or the Post the New York Times yeah um, the New York Times I've sort of sort of good on I mean I just I know it's a hot take but it's like half their tweets are recipes I'm just like why are you posting pie recipes it we're in a there was a school shooting this morning you know well they don't do just that they I, do I, you know totally I mean, but I, just, I think they've had to try to you know listen it's a dog eat dog word out yes, world out yes. there in the world of media and they need to offer more things like wordle and sure. i just heard uh, the the um the ceo of the new york times who's really a cool woman you would like her mm-hmm. um and meredith and she was at this google zeitgeist thing mm-hmm. and they've been very smart about you know they have to get people to pay for subscriptions yep, yep. and the internet was all free for a while and everybody had to trans transfer to a paywall because sure. they have to pay their journalists to do that work. And so I think they've just had to be very creative on how they're going to attract 
subscribers. And, you know, I have to say for myself, I love the New York Times. I, I think at times they could, that, that there is a line between journalism and activism. And yes. I think younger journalists really see their role as being advocates mm -hmm. for truth, justice in the American way, whatever that means to them. Sure. And that I think also cable news, the primetime lineup is just all commentary. Yeah. Um, you know, oftentimes, I don't think Anderson does as much commentary, but, and then I think, you know, this is such an interesting subject because I think during the Trump era, which we're not through with yet, no. it was really hard to be sort of objective in the traditional sense of the word. Yes. Because you had someone who was, let's be honest, lying. You had someone. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Get a creamy Oreo frappe or McCafe smoothie for less with 20% off any purchase of $10 or more. Only on the app. Limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. Visit McDonald's app for details. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And who was... Uh, inciting riots on January 6th. I mean, you had someone who was so morally corrupt. Mm -hmm. It was really hard to do both sides journalism. And let me ask you about you that know? because just in general, I, uh, the ethics in journalism, I'm fascinated. You know, when Anthony Bourdain, you know, committed suicide and then, um, you know, it was Kate Spade and then, you know, I had read a piece, I think it was in The Atlantic, years ago about suicide clusters. Right. About, you know, when you cover Copycat, suicide yeah. and then, you know, and then everyone says rest in peace. So pe people that are contemplating suicide go, oh, that's where the peace is. And then it gives people the idea and the bravery to do it. There was this um, feeder school to Stanford. Yes, in Palo Alto. Yes. And I they had a big, and I think it was a train. One kid, yeah, yeah, one kid run in front of a train and then it was covered. And then so. I, I think I read that piece too, because. I was interested in in that, and the I think it was in the Atlantic. So like got Trump, a lot of I'm coverage. Going, why is everyone covering him so much? Like, is the best way to well, defeat well, this guy? How, how do you not cover somebody it's who's hard. running for president of the United States? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think Jeff Zucker has admitted that they gave him too much uninterrupted airtime. Right. I think Tom Friedman or somebody wrote a piece, uh, um, an edit, uh, a column in his column in the New York Times. I think he got. Oh, I think it was Nick Kristoff, actually, the equivalent of something like $3 billion it's of free advertising. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, listen, I think it, it's it's hard. This was a phenomenon we had never really seen. Um, and I think people sort of were learning as they were going along. And I think they made a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, but there's also always this 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 tension between giving people important information and because of corporate ownership of media outlets, what is going to rate right. and you know, how much are they going to be able to charge advertisers? So I think there is always this conflict there, but I think, um, I just think Donald Trump's existence really changed the game yeah. and, and made it very difficult to, have it be business as usual sure. in journalism. So if you pointed out things that he had done mm -hmm. for people who liked him, you were you were biased, yeah. even though you were actually just being factual. Yeah. So it presented a lot of huge challenges, and I, you know, and and then I think it it bifurcated media even more with, 
you know, MSNBC and Fox News and then CNN went the other way. But I sort of understand why CNN went the other way. I think Mm -hmm. what happened, though, is it became too much coverage of the coverage. Yep. You know, this, you know, Fox News versus CNN. And, you know, for the average person, is that going to be really helpful? Right. To, to have these these media wars mm-hmm. going on. And, and um, I don't know, it, 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 it's been a really tough time for journalism. And I think there's so many great journalists out there who are doing incredible work. Mm-hmm. And, and I just think they get painted with this broad brush. And I think that um, to your uh, the answer, your question about Anderson Cooper, and you know, I love Anderson. This is I'm going to sure get in trouble for this, but you know, as someone that you know grew up without money and is sort of always wondering, like, what does someone stand to gain, and what are you know, I uh, you know. I do feel a little weird that he comes from so much old money. That just me personally mm-hmm. just makes me feel like kind of weird. And I don't mm-hmm. know why. And that's unfair because you should be able to be someone that comes from old money and then says, well, I now want to commit to truth. And, and um, you well, know, it does, I, I'm sure that for some people, and that's interesting that you say that, you know, I mean, how in touch can people be with the average person? I mean, I was talking to my husband today and we were talking about like the economic crisis that is to come and people are really worried and suffering and struggling. And I said, you know, it's, it's sometimes I'm, I'm very relatable, but because of what I've achieved and my station in life, Mm -hmm. it, you know, I don't have proximity to a lot of folks who are, who are dealing with that. And that is a valid criticism of a lot, you know, some journalists. And that's something that I have to fight against. Mm-hmm. You know, a big complaint about Hollywood too, it's in order to make it in Hollywood, a lot of times you have to come from money. You have to have, you know. Well, connections, a, a right? Connections, but you also have to be able to work for free for 10 years. Right. You know, you have right. to have a that's, trust fund in right. order to make it in Hollywood. Same sort of, you know, journalism. On one hand, I'm saying, I don't really want to, you know, pay for news, you know, because we've all gotten so bratty, number, number you, one. You don't want to pay for news. No, I mean, I do. But when you go like, well, I'm paying most people, I think it's like, I have to pay for nine different news networks to get sort of the average, the truth will be somewhere in the middle. You know, I feel weird getting my news from just one source. Right, right, right. You know, so I'm going to have to, you know, pay, you know, know, $15 a month for 10 different ones. I think the average person is like, you know, not going to shell out that you know, kind of money for their news, especially the generation that came from turning on the TV and getting it for free. And right. the younger generations see that as normal, but older right. generations are like, wait, you know, um, you just throw it at my door, you know, uh, well, you, had to, pay you had to pay paper. for it back then. Yeah. But it just felt for some reason, like now that I have to type in a, cr- whatever it is, whatever mental block. And I always say, we don't have to pay for porn anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> it all comes clean in the wash. But on one hand, I'm saying, I don't, you know, I don't know if I want to get my news from someone who's independently wealthy. But unless we're paying for news now or allowing the New York Times to post recipes, how is anyone going to become a journalist if they're not if they're getting paid a low amount unless they're independently wealthy? So is the solution we all just have to buck up and really pay for news and even more so donate to news? Stop complaining that you don't like the news you're getting and that people are biased or come from independent wealth if you're not going to either pay extra, donate, because I'm the door well, that do like think, donates to NPR. You know? Yeah, well, I do think you have to support journalism. If you want good journalism, you have to pay for it. You know, it just, if you want independent journalism or journalists. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, 
It's like, do you want to, you know, people get their news now just from random comedians that don't have a journalism degree and then they complain. Well, I also think there's just so much information coming at you. And I think one thing that is really critically important is that you have to learn how to be a smart news consumer. Mm -hmm. And it may take an extra step. It may say, oh, what is this fake AMA type mm -hmm. publication? Oh, it's anti-abortion. That's why they're writing this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it takes a lot of work to really discern what is you know, where there's an agenda or, you know, who is actually doing a story. And, you know, listen, I think people can be objective, but everyone writes and approaches a story through their own lens. And so they're going to bring their life experiences, some implicit biases, mm -hmm. which are unavoidable to whatever they're talking about. They're going to have some kind of point of view. But I, I think that there's still, as I said, great journalism being done and and sometimes controversial journalism being done. And just really quick, two things that really helped me. Kathleen Hall Jameson um, was one of my professors at Penn and uh -huh. she writes amazing books about framing of news, you know, right. and then of course Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, having, you know, the infotainment of it all. I think just even educating yourself and, and priming your brain to be able to be a smart news consumer. And right. Sort of and also like what kind of implicit biases am I bringing yep. to this information or to this story? Why am I viscerally reacting this way? Mm -hmm. You know, I try to check myself mm -hmm. when it comes to, I mean, it's a lot of stuff to think about, but you know, I think you, you, ha you have to take some responsibility yourself. Yeah. You know, and 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 you have to be self-critical, and you have to, I think, just make sure that you're doing the work. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's of course easier to read about garbage, and I mean, listen, I get crime stories on my Apple feed, and I click them. I'm like, why am I clicking all these true crime stories? Mm -hmm. And I think that would be a really interesting podcast, actually. Yeah. Like, why are people so obsessed with true crime? Mm -hmm. um, but but I need to also dis have some discipline mm -hmm. and, and make sure that my news diet is not all just fluff and garbage and reality shows. I have to say I want to be informed, mm -hmm. and this is the thing. These are the things I have to watch and read in order to be an informed person. And know also that the same way in order to be healthy, you have to watch what you eat. I mean, it's, you know, there's other places right. where we've accepted this dynamic. We know we can't have pizza for dinner every night, you know? So why do we get petulant when we're like, why well, should be able to just read? You should be, have to tell me that, you know, you have to go out of your way to make sure you're choosing to put the right things in your brain the same way you have to choose to put the right things in I your totally body. I totally agree with you. You know, so and we're I think eating junk are, food and we've gotten, And I think we've all gotten lazy. Mm -hmm. You know, we just scroll and we just kind of absorb whatever is put in front of us. And I think you know? that as soon as also, you know, I had a wild um, epiphany uh, one day. I mean, this was like five, six years ago. I was sitting next to, you know, someone and we were both on this, you know, whether it was Huffington Post or whatever it was, and we're both looking at the same website and I'm like, oh, this is crazy. And I look over and I realize we have completely different homepages because right. based on what I've been clicking on, right. they're catering to me. I'm like, why is everything a dog rescue? Right. Why it's is all personalized, which is, I think, really bad because it's kind of giving you what you want no. and not what you need. May I ask if you could pass any law 
today in the news space, i.e., you know, in advertising, there's very strict laws. You have to say not actual size, you know, uh, things like that. Uh, you have to say exactly what's in food. There's laws about that, right? Um, do you think that in our lifetime there will be laws, for example, I feel like in our lifetime there will be, a, we will look back the same way we look back and go, remember when like you could smoke inside yeah, around or an airplane? Yeah, on an air. Remember when like doctors told pregnant women to just smoke a cigarette? If, you know, I think we'll look back and go, remember when just anyone, like people could just be on Twitter all day with no breathalyzer, with no qualifications, just write whatever they wanted and it wasn't vetted by some kind of, you know, the problem with vetting it through some person that decides what's true or not is who do we decide is on that panel. Right, right, right. Do you right, think right. that there will be laws that will catch up to this wilderness? I don't wilderness? know, you know, I think it's, it's hard. I vacillate from thinking the genie's out of the bottle and there's nothing that can be done and we have to educate consumers and be smarter about that. And then you see like what happened to Alex Jones mm -hmm. and that gives me hope. Then there's this thing called Section 230, which um, sh which means that these platforms claim they can't be sued because they're called platforms. They're not publishers. Mm -hmm. And so, ergo, they bear no responsibility for the things that travel through their pipes. Hmm. So there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, doing something about Section 230, but there are a lot of steps that have to happen first. You know, like academics don't even have access to how these social media platforms work. Wow. And so we have to work on that. We have to do much more media literacy starting in elementary school mm -hmm. for kids. Um, we, we recommended that there are some people who are quote unquote super spreaders who have a certain number of followers mm -hmm. where information can be disseminated quickly and in a widespread way that they should have to have certain mm -hmm. sort of responsibilities because they have a huge audience. Yeah. And so I think, I don't know if there's any one thing that can be done uh, because the problem is so huge. You know, President Obama talks about disinformation being the biggest threat to democracy, and mm -hmm. you can see how that's the case. But it doesn't seem like it's it still isn't taken really that seriously. And then you see what Elon Musk is doing over at Twitter, and you think, well, is that, you know, First Amendment rights, or is that just letting hate speech run amok mm -hmm. on these platforms without any kind of any kind of editorial or, or, or management in terms of like looking at the information, taking it down. Mm -hmm. My daughter Carrie worked for Reuters when they were doing this joint project with Facebook during the pandemic and her job was to correct and identify misinformation. But the problem was, you know, by the time she would report disinformation, by the time she would report it out, by the way, they talk about misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, but for our purposes, I'll just say disinformation. By the time she would report out that the vaccine didn't cause Alzheimer's, you know, that thing had spread like wildfire. Yeah. And so what they that? say, the truth, uh, what they say, lies, run around make their way around the world before or run around the world before the truth has a chance to tie its shoes mm -hmm. so it's it's a, it's a big issue and i don't really know how to solve it and what's interesting you know they're trying to make cnn more kind of just the facts ma'am yeah. but then they get pummeled for low ratings right because do people really want just the facts have we 
cross this Rubicon mm -hmm. where people are into engagement through enragement. They want to feel mm -hmm. like tribal and this visceral feeling it's like, addictive. yeah, it's yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a big issue and I, I'm certainly not qualified to solve it, but it's something we, we really need to pay attention to. And I think probably we need a documentary on sort of what has happened to journalism and, that would be a really interesting, you know, thing to dive into. One that I um, highly, highly recommend—not that it solves this, but it just helps help me understand how. Uh, uh, looping back to the conspiracy theory of it all, the um, the QAnon documentary "Into the Storm," yeah, about how QAnon, you know, this anonymous person was sort of, you know, um, in the sort of. It was fascinating to me to see how quickly uh, these. Um, Miss it, la false malinformation, whatever yeah, it is, yeah. can spread, and then sort of the neurochemical drug of uh, of waiting to get some new hot gossip and the serotonin you get from you know hearing something crazy. And I think you know something that really helps in that area is like what makes someone vulnerable to believing something or believing someone who has no credibility and believing something that is so, um, you know, sinister and, you know, not necessarily true. Like mm -hmm. if we put people in a situation where they're completely hopeless, of course, they're going to be more vulnerable to this. You look at, you know, Scandinavian countries and you're like, why isn't that a problem over there? Well, again, I think the point about income inequality, you know, about paying attention to that and about how that feeds and fuels. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of this, I think, is is interesting. Um, and when we look at like you know Russia and China, and we think, I know I have to let you go soon. We think, oh, the thing we find the most disgusting about those countries, I'll speak for myself, is the fact that they control the information that their citizens have in order to maintain in power to keep them subjugated. So it's sort of, I think that you know our uh, longtime rivalry with you know places like Russia and China, where the main thing is, oh, you don't have freedom of speech, and they completely control the media to keep their populations you know ignorant so that they can maintain this. Right. unfair power structure it's tricky because anytime you try to control information here it goes no well we can't turn it to china then we're just going to turn it into russia and it's right sort of, right it's right hard right. to negotiate first amendment rights right. with then censoring right people you know that's the tricky one therein lies the rub and right. how do we <laughs> you know can we give up a little bit of quote-unquote free speech in order to make sure the speech that is disseminated widely is at least somewhat accurate yeah but i have hope i i maybe you know as a comedian again you always go the contrarian way and everyone has no hope right now. So well, I, I do. I mean, I don't know. I still think to your point about journalism, I, there's so much great journalism being done. Yeah. I think that we have to really buck up those people who are, who are doing, doing the job day in and day out who are, you know, in Ukraine risking their lives, yeah. covering that story. You know, they can't help it if the American public has a short attention span. And right? here's what I'll say is like Or that they, they aren't aren't interested in sort of geopolitics. They'd rather watch Real Housewives. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I think I really admire and respect so many journalism sorry, let me pick that up. <laughs> I really admire and respect so many journalists working today. You know, Peter Baker and, and, and Susan Glasser wrote a great book about Donald Trump. Like, and it's, it's fact-based yeah. and, um, you know, they're just, there's just, uh, and the Atlantic and the New Yorker, yeah. a lot of network news correspondents, you know, people who are, who are covering these stories, there's, 
there's really great work being done. And so, I, again, I don't want to paint everyone with a broad brush. It's become an economic reality for some people to 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 be judged on the clickbaitness yeah. of their headlines, and that's a shame. Um, and I fall victim to it like anyone else does. But there, there's some really good work going on in podcasts and mm -hmm. documentaries, yep. which I think is the new long-form journalism. Yep. And um, so we, we need to support those folks. And, and you like do need to pay for your subscriptions. You've got to pay for your news. You yeah. get what you pay for. And I yeah. think that, you know, the same way we had a reckoning in the way that we eat and people getting sick from what they were eating, there's going to be you're getting mentally sick from what you're consuming. And then people are, you know, it's almost like the new Darwinism in a way. Yeah. It's just going to be like, you know, you're only as healthy as the news you consume. But the, there was good news with the midterms. You know, dem yes. democracy lives to see another day. I think people are much smarter than they're sometimes given credit for. And they saw this real danger. And this pandemic was like a real rock bottom. I right. Think. So and I get excited for. Yeah. So but I think they saw what some Republicans wanted to do in terms of running for secretary of state and and subverting the will of the people mm -hmm. when it came to uh, election results mm -hmm. in a, at a state by state level. And and people said, no, we can't do that. You know, our democracy is precious, but it's also fragile and people yeah. have to have to remember that. I'm letting you go. I have to let Hi, you John. go. I have to let you go. Come Jim. in. John is what? here. Are, are your parents here? Oh, they, they left a long time ago. Oh, they did? I was oh, no. to the other woman in my life. Come on. <laughs> We're building a Mormon family. Thank God you are still working your tush off and you are still um, uh, around. What exactly uh, are you doing well, right you now? Well, you probably, hopefully, um, I think we are Instagram followers, so we follow each other. So I do, we started a company, my husband, John and I, about four years ago, because I had done sort of everything in traditional media and I'd been very lucky and I feel very, very fortunate that I had the career I had. And well, you earned and, it, but. <laughs> and no, 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 but you know, I, I, mm -hmm. I loved it. And, but I sort of saw the media landscape changing. I saw disintermediation where you didn't necessarily need this big infrastructure. You could talk directly to people. And, um, you know, that has pros and cons, by the way, when you're not a responsible person, yep. as we've discussed. But, you know, we just saw this opportunity to be entrepreneurial in a way I hadn't been before and really John hadn't been before. So we started this company, Katie Couric Media, which I, I didn't want to name it that. But John thought, listen, you... You're a known name, yep. a known commodity, so we should take advantage of, of that. One of the very few names, I think, that- Well, it's harder in, in nowadays to become a household name yep. just because they're, everybody's a mm -hmm. household name, right? Yep. To a certain niche audience. But anyway, so we have a newsletter called Wake Up Call. We have, awesome. you know, our, our work reaches millions of people on our website. Um, our newsletter is called Wake Up Call. People can sign up for it. And- you know, I'm really proud of the team we've assembled. We have about 40 people now. We have people doing video series. We have digital series where, you know, where we work a lot with mission-driven brands because as trust in institutions like financial institutions or political institutions and the media have declined, um, you know, actually people are looking to companies to stand for something in addition and not just the bottom line to care about the environment, to care about gender equality, to infuse their, their sort of corporate mentality with something other than, 
you know, quarterly earnings. And and consumers want to buy things they feel good about. Mm -hmm. And so companies have gotten into storytelling. And I love storytelling. And there are places where my interests are our interests and values at at our company and their interests intersect and we can help with storytelling and that's sort of how uh, it's a it's a different financial model that's it's awesome. not branded content it's brand supported content that we can get behind and develop and and help them with storytelling so we're just doing a lot of different that's things br- that we is have brilliant we have a shop that is all companies that that give back or, or care about gender equality or mm-hmm. give back to their community or environmentally sustainable, mm-hmm. female founded, uh, founded by people of color, um, you know, LGBTQ plus companies. So we're trying to elevate them and use our our platform to kind of draw attention to them so people know about these places. That's incredible because I think a lot of people's biggest, you know, thorn in their side at the moment is, wait a second, I love what this journalist is doing, but if I really do the math, they work for General Electric or this thing is founded by Saudi money, but they have to do that in order to survive. So that's such a brilliant way to just go head first into that. Yeah. And and I think, yeah, we are, we're truly independent because if there's anything that I don't want to do, that I deem not worthy, or that we deem not worthy as a company, we don't have to get involved in it. But if there's things that they're, you know, companies spotlighting people who are giving back or women who are breaking glass ceilings or disrupting certain spaces that we can, that, that we can really get behind. It's sort of a win-win for everybody. That's incredible. And there are so many brands like that, like those shoes, what are they? Tom's shoes, you know, people like that, you know, they're small businesses and also big companies, big global companies are now getting into this space. And it, you know, some people accuse them of, of, of greenwashing, you know, mm-hmm. not really walking the walk, but a lot of them really are. And and so we want to support what they're doing to make the planet better or to give opportunities to a broader cross-section of individuals. They're, they're doing a lot of good work. Can there be a little section, maybe just the info email Katie section or something where people can send you um, uh, uh, independent journalists that they like? I've started following a couple people on Substack. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. that are doing great stuff that either works for Heather Cox account. Richardson, totally. for example. Yeah, my Jessica Reed Krause, yes. uh, she's in the entertainment sort of space, was yeah. more than the Do- Johnny Depp trial, the Weinstein trial. Well, you know, honestly, I'd love, I'd love to give them more attention, you know, because we're looking to to get more people involved because I don't want to be the only voice. And we, you know, are talking to other people who we can elevate mm-hmm. and they can be part of a, they, they, everyone's sick of me saying collective because I've been talking about it for years in, in our, in our team. But we really want to shine the spotlight on other up and coming journalists or journalists who are smart, but maybe want to expand their yep. audience. Yep. And I think hopefully if I give them, you know, if they have our imprimatur or imprimatur, I don't know how people People say that, but know you know, it, it, it can it can be helpful to them too, and introduce them to a bigger audience of people. And it could be interesting for you to be able to say, like, who do people like? Yeah, and I would love to know and you know? why, and who are people responding to, and why, and then vet to make sure that all of it's actually true. Right. And then go, oh, great. Well, you know, we do have like, you know, I do a lot of work with Mark Hyman, for example, who does a lot of of wellness and is a functional medicine doctor. He used to be at the Cleveland Clinic, and you know, we have other people that we turn to for sort of political views. And, you know, so we, we are trying to kind of expand 
the number of voices we feature on our platform. And then in terms of the last thing I'll say, the, when I think forward, I would love within the next five, 10 years, the same way that, you know, a tweet is verified because they are verifying. I want to see a news tweet that's verified by you or by your website. Right. You know, right. because like this has been vetted. This person is, you know, yeah, has that's, you know, I suggested that and I think it's complicated. I wanted to, to I thought that we could do kind of a good housekeeping seal of approval yeah. for, and I know that there are organizations like Steve Brill started one. I forget what it's called. Um, we can look it up, mm -hmm. but, but I think the problem there is vetted, vetted by whom? Sure. Right. And I, if but, I, but I was think vetted it would by be you, great. I would or, feel comfortable or, or, or vetted by the Annenberg school. Sure. Right. Sure. You know, some, some organization or, academic institution like that. I think that would be really helpful to people. 100%. But um, I don't think that idea has gotten a lot of traction for whatever reason. I think that, I think uh, it's probably very threatening to a lot of people that there would sort of be uh, 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 rules in any uh, way, shape or form. And, but and I guess that also that maybe it hurts like up and coming uh, organizations. I don't know. But I do think if consumers knew that there were certain rules and certain we protocols have to approve food right pro you know? protocols that yeah that that reporters had to go through in terms of editors and fact checking and you know two sources or mm -hmm. if they use an anonymous source they have to explain why mm -hmm. you know and and the new york times the washington post and ap and all these important publications do follow those rules but you know, it's also very interesting when I was on this, I was the chair, co-chair of a disinformation commission at the Aspen Institute. And I remember talking about the good old days, you know, when there weren't that many outlets and there was Walter Gronkite mm -hmm. and uh, Rash Rashad Robinson, who who is the head of an organization called Color of Change said, you know, I wouldn't be too nostalgic about those days because they were very... Um, they were very exclusive mm -hmm. and not inclusive of all different voices yep. of, of, you know, there weren't many female voices. There weren't many black voices. Mm -hmm. There weren't voices any, yeah. representing people from, from all walks of life. And I think that's a really important point for all the shit that gets out there online yeah. that suddenly a lot of people who heretofore didn't have a voice or didn't have outlets or now it's it has leveled the playing field in a lot of ways i'm going to throw one thing at you because i do think that um uh you know networks like the grio and you know right you know butch byron allen now i just right, did an right, interview right. with byron allen about that right you know and so maybe it's or worth, the root you know yeah and, exactly because i mean sometimes you know someone of color is like i kind of want to go to the place that's all people of color where i could be you know instead of like i have to be the one person in an all you know uh, white, white new who care whatever they choose but I think although they, I don't think that exists at anymore quite so much oh anyway, exactly yeah, whatever it is yeah. whatever version you know but also you know collaborating with you know the other news networks that you know exclusively reach a certain you know group um, and you know instead of assuming everyone's gonna reach everyone and we have to you know well I think I often say uh, that mass media has become an oxymoron and that the days of everybody watching or reading the same thing just isn't going to happen anymore. Sure. So how do you try to ensure that at least the niche media, you know, has has certain standards? Totally, totally. Or that just supporting a niche media for someone that wants to make sure that they're, you know, getting every angle of something. So, yeah, yeah maybe having, you know, a little the little Byron Allen 
Yeah, that's interesting. I, I've been reading a little bit about that. That's interesting. Yeah. Anyway. You're the well, greatest. I love you so much. Thank you so much smart. for doing this. Yeah. But what that's a dream. Why also you don't need the good housekeeping seal of approval because if you really want information you can trust, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal exists. So whatever your political. I think yeah, but, people, but, I think but, but Whitney was saying. The New York Times. But those but people do not. No, no. But fine. So then if you don't trust, but then if you're in that. Yeah. Still red Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Get a creamy Oreo frappe or McCafe smoothie for less with 20% off any purchase of $10 or more. Only on the app. Limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. Visit McDonald's app for details. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.